Let's talk about burning. Now, coming into this film, I had, I admit, some pretty high expectations. Last semester, I took this film class at the school I go to, which isn't a film school, so these film classes are very English-y based. They talk about themes and motifs, and not typically the stuff I talk about when I was in film school or I talk about on this. It's more about the esoteric and the thematic than it is about actual filmmaking or the film itself. But one of the films we were going to watch, we ended up not watching, was Burning. Instead, we ended up watching Parasite. And I can see why you might mix one with the other. And there are a lot of similarities between the two. There is this concern in both of them with wealth and classism, especially in South Korea. There's this really distinct separation between the very wealthy and the very poor. And much like a lot of the United States, there isn't a lot of middle class. You're either very wealthy or very poor. And of course, our protagonist of this film, much like Parasite, is, well, he's pretty poor. He lives on a farm. He has a house. He's certainly wealthier than the family in Parasite, but he doesn't have a lot. And he's alone. His father is in prison. His mother ran away 16 years ago. He's not exactly living his best life. And what's interesting about the beginning of the film is it starts with him carrying a bag of some sort into a store and it's just full of just uh it feels so much like uh middle america that it's almost it's strange to realize that so that because of capitalism and commercialism and these different kind of things the world in some ways has gotten a lot smaller and i know we kind of get mad a lot about globalism especially in your liberal arts colleges but it does make this interesting thing where you can go to somewhere like South Korea and I can watch a film from South Korea and I can see things that I would see in my hometown here in Noblesville, Indiana, halfway across the world. And it's a really strange experience and it shows what exactly this film is about and what it's concerned with. It's concerned with commercialism, it's concerned with sexuality, it's concerned with our lustfulness for the human body when, uh, our protagonist in Jaime, I believe is how you pronounce her name. I only know her name because they say her name about every 10 seconds. I don't know any of the other names, although I guess Steven Yeun plays Ben, which I love. I think Steven Yeun is incredible in absolutely everything. Uh, uh, Jaime meets our protagonist, whose name I don't know for some reason. And their first conversation is how she has gotten plastic surgery to look pretty, to look beautiful. And she goes on to tell him very early on when they go on, on a break that when they first met, the first thing he said to her was that she was ugly. And that kind of sort of stuck with her. And it wasn't just because he said it, that she was ugly, but she had this internalized idea that being beautiful was the same as being successful. And we come to find out later in the film that this actually doesn't just play into her looks, but also how she dresses, how she acts, where she lives. She's, we find out later in the film that she's in this incredible amount of debt, but you wouldn't know it because even though she's not living in this giant mansion, like say Ben, she does seem to be living a pretty comfortable lifestyle, especially in comparison to our protagonist. And so they end up going back to her place and she, and before they go back to her place, they have dinner. And at this dinner, 
she mimes eating a tangerine and there's something very sexual about it and it at this moment I was really reminded of Parasite but also Call Me By Your Name and just like this obsession with uh citrus for some reason and our, our need especially um especially in Korea the the um the fascination with citrus and I, I think it has to do with the fact that there isn't citrus in Korea and so it's a, it's a wealthy person food much like here in Indiana say I don't know, certain kinds of meats would be really expensive. Or like in Hawaii, a hamburger is really expensive because there's no cows in Hawaii. I think it's the same thing with Korea. There's no citrus around there. So citrus is a status symbol. And in fact, you can go all the way back to Shakespeare and in uh, in one of his plays. It's not a Midsummer's Night's nice Dream, but it's a romantic comedy of his. And they talk about how Just Whedon actually made uh, a remake of it, which is fine, I guess. There's other remakes that are better. There's one with... Uh, Emma Thompson that's actually quite good and they actually talk about the citrus as a form as a status symbol as it and even today it still sort of is a source status symbol and of course this book or this film and perhaps the reason I confuse it with a book is it's very concerned with literature I once saw a review for this film that it is uh, under the silver lake for readers which it does follow a lot of the themes of under the silver lake and of course part of the reason it's so obsessed with literature it's because it's based off of two different short stories. It's uh, based off a short story by William Faulkner called Barn Burning and uh, a short story written by a uh, Korean writer also called uh, Barn Burning. And it's kind of a mixture of those two stories kind of clumped into one tale. And I often find that short stories make for the best films. When people adapt novels into films, there's just so much there that often two hours just isn't enough time. I actually think that novels adapted into, say, uh, a TV series, say Catch-22, for instance, which had uh, George Clooney and, other, and a couple other big names in it, actually works a lot better because, well, there's just a lot of things that happen in a book, and to crunch that into an hour and a half, two hours, maybe three hours, is pretty much impossible and almost always fails. I mean, you hear all the time how people complain about the Harry Potter series or even the Lord of the Rings series, that there's just so many things that just aren't in the films, even though each film is like four hours long. I mean, it's 12 hours of film, and yet there's still a bunch of stuff missing. And that just doesn't happen so much when you have a short story. You can have really the whole story in there, and they actually were able to take two short stories and combine them in this really interesting way. And so after she does the mining, miming, she falls, uh, Jaime, that is, she falls asleep in the cafe, and this becomes something that she does a lot, which... It's really intriguing to me because I think it sort of suggests not only her innocence, but also a childlike quality to her, just like a baby can fall asleep anywhere. And she's often in a, a, a fetal position when she's sleeping. And the other thing is, I think it's a sort of suggestion of trust. She trusts the world. She trusts everyone in the world. She trusts anyone she meets. And I think that's why... Whenever she meets one, she immediately trusts them and is willing to reveal herself as a human, but also her physical body, because she has an incredible amount of trust. And so he wakes her up, and they go back to... And then a couple of days later, they go to her apartment, where she asks him to feed her cat. And what's interesting about that is in the whole first two-thirds of the film, you never see this cat, and you kind of wonder if it is a real cat. And at this moment, they... 
the two of them are talking and he asks, you know, is, is this a real cat, right? Or is this just like he uh, quotes from what she just said a couple of minutes ago about the tangerine, if this is kind of the same thing. And she says, why would I have you feed a fake cat? And he's like, I, I genuinely do not know. And this uh, leads to a, um, a lustful encounter. And during this lustful encounter, he sees the only light that is ever in the room during the day because it faces north and there's only one window. For only about a couple of minutes, there is a reflection from one of the big skyscrapers that bounces off the skyscraper and into her room, showing this sort of momentary glimpse of not only light, but I think wealth. And even though she right, is kind of living this wealthy lifestyle in a lot of senses, she's still very much not. She's still very much creating the illusion of it, but it's clear that well, except for like this couple of minutes a day, she's not actually there. She's not actually that. I think what it's trying to, what the film's trying to suggest at this point is that much like the light that comes into a room, she is able to create this illusion of wealth for a couple of minutes, right? She's able to create an illusion if you don't really know her. But the moment you spend any real time with her, you see that, well, she's actually in a lot of debt. She's not wealthy at all. She's actually very poor. And so this scene ends and she goes off to Africa where she talks about the small hunger and the big hunger or great hunger. And the small hunger is actual hunger being hungry. But the big hunger is the hunger for meaning, for purpose. And this is seems to be an obsession of Jaime. She wants to have a purpose. She wants to have meaning in her life. As we know from the beginning of the film, she is someone who basically shows her body for money. She's not a stripper by any means, but she does work in a similar fashion. She uses her physical body at you know uh, grocery stores or supermarkets or what have you to basically encourage people to come into the store and she seems to be wanting something more she wants to have purpose she wants to have meaning which is really interesting because when she comes back she brings Ben back with her who she met on the trip and Ben is this incredibly wealthy person and when uh, our protagonist asks Ben what he does for a living and he says I play that's my job I play which is basically just another way of saying he's independently wealthy it seems like his parents are wealthy or he just comes from wealth it's not really clear how he's wealthy or why he's wealthy he's just wealthy as as is the case with so many wealthy people not only in South Korea but across the world people who just happen to be wealthy and there's no real reason or logic to it. it's not that they're working hard or they're somehow better than other people they've just seemed to fumble their way into wealth whether it's because of their parents or other family members or friends or what have you and this is a person who's independently wealthy and you never see him do any kind of work he's always playing he's always relaxed he's never really doing anything which is an interesting juxtaposition to our protagonist because our protagonist also doesn't work he goes in for one job interview and immediately walks away from the job interview he never seems to work in the rest of the film and i don't think that's suggesting that you know if with hard work you too can become successful but that wealth and hard work have almost nothing to do with each other. And sure, I suppose if he worked at that job, perhaps he would climb slightly up the social ladder, but it's also pointing out that he'd basically be in the same place he is already. He'd spend so much money on getting there and supplies and food that at the end of the day, you're basically, you're back at even. It's about the same as not doing anything at all. Now, how he affords to live is really unclear because he sells the only calf he has, and he doesn't really have any source of income, so where he's getting his money is never really shown and is kind of confusing, but um, 
it's just not really a concern of the film unlike Parasite where that's perhaps the concern of the film this film doesn't really at all seem to be concerned with the actual making of money and so there's a couple of interactions between Ben, Jaime, and our protagonist. Jaime and Ben always seem to be together. He can never seem to get Jaime alone at this point. Really, until she's gone, Jaime is always with Ben. And and our protagonist just wants to be with her. He wants you know to hang out with her. And he has this sort of relationship with her. And at, at the beginning of the film, I'm not really sure what Ben's relationship to Jaime is. It doesn't necessarily seem sexual but doesn't seem non-sexual either there's a certain possessive quality to it almost that is just it's rather confusing and i don't really understand it and that's perhaps the biggest flaw of the film is i don't understand it. i don't think i'm smart enough to understand this film or what it's trying to say and so they meet a couple of times and then they end up going to ben's house which is just this absolutely beautiful house and our protagonist makes the point of, you know, has someone only a couple years older than me have this much wealth? How is he this successful? And she says, well, he just is. Like, there's no logic or reason to it. He's just wealthy. It's just who he is. He plays, as they say. And you can see that our protagonist is sort of jealous of this. He doesn't like this. And then we have perhaps the most pivotal scene in the film and really where everything changes. And this doesn't happen until an hour and a half into the film. I find the first hour and a half of the two and a half hour film so what is that like what maybe like three-fourths or you know two-thirds of the film to be really slow nothing really happens there's no real conflict it's just this sort of relationship that's sort of quirky sort of funny and also kind of strange and there's a certain surreal tone to it but nothing has happened up to this point it's basically just a feeling a tone of sorts and so they go to our protagonist's house out in the country and Ben and, our, and the protagonist have this long conversation. This conversation happens right after Jaime basically just takes her clothes off and dances in the beautiful twilight hour and they take her inside and then the two of them talk and their discussion is about barn burning. It's about this idea that Ben goes out and every two months he goes and burns not a barn, but a greenhouse. He basically scouts it out and then burns it. And then uh, our protagonist, of course, points out, well, isn't that a crime? And he says, yeah, well, smoking pot, which is what they're doing at the moment, isn't this a crime too? Kind of pointing out to our protagonist that it's a crime that doesn't really hurt anybody. These are abandoned uh, greenhouses and they don't really affect, right? It doesn't really affect anyone. It's just, uh, it makes Ben happy. It also shows that Ben doesn't really care about anyone but himself, that his really only concern is for him and his pleasure, and he's willing to put the safety of others for his own benefit. And uh, Ben says, well, it's been about two months since I'm uh, burning, I'm going to do one really soon, which of course is where the name of the film comes from. And the protagonist says, well, where are you going to do it? And he says, well, somewhere very near to here. Someone very, very near. And as a viewer, you have, part of you is thinking, are they going to burn his greenhouse? Or are they going to burn one? Like, what? That's just, it feels very ominous at that moment. And Jaime ends up coming out at this moment 
and they decide that they're going to leave, and Jaime has a short conversation with the protagonist, and the protagonist says, look, if you just undress for everybody, you're no better than a whore. Which, uh, obviously she does not take well, because why would you take that well? That's a, it's a pretty cruel thing to say, but you can see that our protagonist is saying it because he feels a certain possessiveness of Jaime. He feels what he believes to be love, although I would argue that it really can't be love if it's built on a possession, a need to own, a need to hide this woman away from the world, if you will. And so Jaime's pretty pissed, and Jaime and Ben get in their really fancy Porsche, and they drive off. And this is where the film starts to get interesting. So throughout the film, our protagonist is getting phone calls. And basically we'll have a phone call and say hello, and no one will answer. And this happens again and again and again throughout the film. It's kind of eerie and strange and weird, but you're not really sure what to make of it up to this point. And then a couple of weeks go by and you see our protagonist running a lot, right? Just like the burning of the greenhouses, there's the burning of his lungs. You can't breathing heavily as he runs from greenhouse to greenhouse. And there's this long montage of him going to these different greenhouses, checking them out. And it seems like he's looking for one to burn. And he even gets to the point where he starts to light one on fire, but ends up not lighting the whole thing ends up putting out the fire and we come to find out that he is not only looking for one to burn but he's also trying to figure out which one Ben burns and he can't seem to find it and then he gets a call from Jaime and he answers the phone he says hello hello and much like the other silent calls there's no sound no one answers he finds this strange and then he goes to see Jaime at her apartment and the apartment's basically empty it's extremely clean, and yes, all of her clothes and things are still there, but it seems to have been emptied of all belongings. And our protagonist points out that this room has never been this clean before. It's just, it's surreal and strange and doesn't feel right. And he opens the door and you see that her suitcase is out there. So it's clear that she hasn't traveled or gone anywhere, and yet she's not there. She's not answering her phone. He can't see her there. And so he goes on this exploration to find her, and he ends up stalking, honestly, Ben because he has a suspicion that Ben has something to do with Jaime, because in, in our protagonist's mind, Ben was the last one to see Jaime. And so he follows him around for a while, and he meets him at a coffee shop, and they have this conversation where Ben first asks about the burnings. He says, you know, you, you said you burned one very near to me, and yet I can't find it. And what our what Ben says is, well, it's just too close. Sometimes when something's very close to you, you can't see it. Which, of course, how do you not think of uh, Edgar Allan Poe's purloined letter and the idea that sometimes the most obvious thing is the right answer, and yet we look beyond it, right? And purloined letter, of course, they place a letter right on the table because it's right there where everyone can see it. No one knows it because our detectives are so concerned with finding this letter that they don't look right in front of them. They don't look what's directly in front of him, and Ben is suggesting the same thing, and yet, time after time, Ben cannot find this burned greenhouse, he just can't figure out where it is, and as he's about to leave the coffee shop, he asks Ben, have you heard from Jaime? And he's like, no. And the way he says it feels oddly suspicious, and as a viewer, you think, well, it kind of feels like he has heard from Jaime, though, and who else would know about Jaime's whereabouts? And... This is where the Under the Silver Lake, I suppose, uh, themes come about. Because the rest of the film is our protagonist trying to find Jaime. He, it becomes a sort of detective story. He goes and meets with uh, 
her former employee or employer, I should say, goes and meets with the family, which uh, has this really interesting moment where he's talking to the family and they're like, did Jaime send you? And, and, you know, he kind of doesn't say anything. He doesn't say that he's really looking for Jaime or Jaime's missing. And he asks about a story that Jaime told him while they were at, while well, Ben, Jaime, and our protagonist were at the protagonist's house, which is the story that Jaime was trapped in a well and that our protagonist saved her from that well. And that becomes one of the big concerns of the rest of the film is him trying to figure out if this really happened because Jaime points out, you don't even remember this. You saved my life and you don't even remember it. And he asks first, the, and the family's the first people I ask. He says, you know, was, did she ever get trapped in a well? And the strange thing is he doesn't really ask it. He says it was more of a matter of fact. And they said there wasn't a well there. And even if there was a well, she didn't get trapped in it. I think we would know about that, which is weird. And, you, and it makes you think, wait a minute, is Jaime lying about this and if she is lying about this what exactly is she getting out of it what does she get out of lying about this and perhaps it's what she gets out of lying it's just this um creation of this world that doesn't exist it's her need to be a part of something and to be in his life she says the first time that they meet he tells her that she's ugly and yet this falling into the well happened years before and so then he continues to investigate Ben and is following him all around and there's kind of these like moments of like oh well Ben see him and uh there's this really interesting scene where our protagonist is following Ben in his Porsche and our protagonist is driving a car that's like very distinct like it's very like he's not good at it and our protagonist follows Ben to the countryside and protagonist lose sight of him so our protagonist pulls over to the side of the road and not being able to find him, the protagonist decides to drive back. And as he's driving back, he looks in the rear view mirror and he sees the Porsche. He sees Ben in his fancy car following him. And there's kind of this strange sort of surreal chase scene. And our protagonist sort of like hides away. And then Ben ends up hiding or climbing up this hill. And our protagonist follows him. And at the end of the scene, Ben is standing at the precipice of this sort of lake, I suppose. And with mountains in the background. Our protagonist is not far behind him. And at this point, it's not really clear if Ben knows that the protagonist is there. And then the scene just ends. And I, I honestly don't really know what to make of the scene. I'm not... To be honest, I'm not really sure why the scene is there or what the scene is really about or what it means. I... I mean, that scene just kind of smash cuts out of the two of them standing there, him a few feet behind, or protagonist a few feet behind Ben. And I just, I don't really know what to make of it. Honestly, I just have no idea what to see me. And this goes back to this idea that I don't know if I really grasp this film. This is often considered one of the great greatest films of 2018. And at this point in the film, I, I still don't get it. And we're getting close to the end of the film. And after this scene, our protagonist again follows Ben and is sitting at where Ben lives and basically just sits outside his apartment complex. And Ben calls him and, it, and you find out that Ben's standing right outside our protagonist's door and knocks on the door and says, hey, you should come in. And it's clear that, at least to me, that Ben kind of knows what's been going on and is kind of aware of it and you're... You're not really sure if there was like any sort of interaction at that scene at the lake. That's really unclear, but he invites 
our protagonist up and our protagonist goes up with him and you can see that in our protagonist's eyes he genuinely believes that Ben's done something to Jaime. So he has to go to the bathroom and in the bathroom which parallels a earlier scene where our protagonist was in, the last time he was at the house he was in the bathroom he opened a drawer and there was a drawer of women's belongings along with uh, makeup. Which when I first saw that I really wasn't sure to, what to make of it is this to suggest he's sort of a uh, you know, he, he wears makeup, or he wears uh, what's con traditionally considered feminine clothes, or is it f because, like, he has so many lady friends that this is just kind of the things that they, they left behind? And I was entirely unsure what to make of it the first time, and yet the second time, he goes to that same drawer, and he sees the watch that he won in the raffle at the beginning of the film, the watch that was given to Jaime. And to me, that shows that she was there, but it's... I'm still sort of confused of what that really means. And of course, the other thing is, is there's a cat there and it ends up being the same cat. At least it, it seems to the viewer and both our protagonists that the cat is Boyle, who is the cat that he took care of but never saw back at Jaime's place, which is kind of doubly um, hard to figure out because, because you never saw the cat, right? You, uh, presumably the cat existed because the cat food was gone and it would you know, use the litter box, and yet this is the first time you ever see the cat, and it doesn't act like the supposed cat from before, because the cat from before would never come out when it saw people, and yet this cat was very friendly, and it's confusing, to say the least. And so our protagonist at this point basically leaves. He's kind of freaked out. Well, no, he stays for the party, and he stays for a while, and he sees, like, all these people uh, talking about all these different things, and again, just like at the beginning of the of the film they're talking about money they're talking about wealth and how the chinese they'll often throw their money away because it's considered sort of disrespectful where in korea they really value money they see it as a, a form of of not only status but a form of, of showing your worth as a person much like we do in, here in the united states of america and, and this is the conversation that's going, and you can see that the protagonists and Ben both are really just uninterested in this conversation. They're just kind of in their own worlds. And Ben smiles at our protagonist, and at this point our protagonist leaves the party. And Ben kind of follows him out and says, hey, are you sure you want to leave? And he's like, yeah, I, I want to go. And so our protagonist leaves, and then we have this really strange scene, which, again, I don't really understand. Ben is alone. He's putting on his contacts or whatever. And he steps into what I think is his bedroom. I'm not entirely sure. He steps into a room that we haven't seen up to this point. And in that room, I believe, is Jaime. I, I'm going to be honest, I'm not great with faces. So I'm not entirely sure that if it's Jaime or not. But if it's not Jaime, that wouldn't really make sense. But Jaime is sitting there, completely still, and he is putting makeup on her. And that's it. Not a single line of dialogue, not any sort of explanation. It seems that he is treating her like a sort of doll, like this thing that he owns because he has, right, because he has the money to, he can basically own other human beings. And then we have our final scene where uh, our protagonist and Ben meet at this giant field where there's just hundreds of greenhouses. And Ben says, you know, there's a lot of great burnings to happen out here. And our protagonist stabs Ben repeatedly, murdering him. And then he puts the protagonist back in the car. He, or, or excuse me, puts Ben back in the car. The protagonist takes off all of his clothes. And then he lights 
a house on fire, which is interesting other because other than a dream, it's the only fire. Because there's a, there's a dream early on where our protagonist dreams of seeing a greenhouse, and yet this is the only real fire that actually takes place in the film other than the dream. And then our protagonist, naked, drives away. And that's the end of the film. So I, I'm going to be completely honest. I, Even though I watched this film last night, and I thought about it a lot last night, and I slept on it, I still don't really understand this film at all. I don't know if I have a real grasp on this film. And because of that, I can only give this film a 7 out of 10. I found the film to be very slow. I really don't understand the first half of the film. And maybe I'm just missing something. I, I, I don't think it's because it's like not... I mean, 7 out of 10 is still a good rating, but I'm not saying that's not one of the greatest films of 2018, but because... Uh, I don't understand it. I really can't give it a better rating. So, and probably part of it is because I had such high expectations coming in. I thought this was going to be, you know, a sort of masterpiece. And to be honest, I don't even think it's as good as Parasite. Because Parasite had very clear goals, very clear motives, and it's really intense. Where this film, although it has this weird sort of tone and surreal, I don't really understand it. And that lack of understanding did lead to a certain dullness to the film that I didn't really like. But overall, I'd say this film is certainly a 7 out of 10.